0: Thank you, Pastor Bob. Appreciate it tonight. It's good to be with you guys. Pastor Mark gives you all his greetings. He needed some time just to be home with Debbie tonight, and I know you understand that. She, was, uh, she just had a kind of a rough weekend and appreciate your prayers, and I know that uh, they appreciate the time off. So my name is Joe Greer. I'm the middle child <laughs> in the great celebration triumvirate, uh, and uh, glad to be with you guys all. And for those of you who don't know me, I was campus pastor for the last year over at West Green Bay, and we're folded back into the East Green Bay campus now, so now we're known as Celebration Church, period. And uh, it's great to be here with you. Awesome tonight. Uh, I thought I'd read out of uh, Isaiah 58, uh, chapter 58, verses 1 through 4, just to kind of open up tonight. And uh, we're going to go into this message just a little bit. I'll explain it in a second. Uh, Oh, and hi, hello to all of our Appleton campuses, our Appleton campus and Stevens Point campus. They're on live with us tonight as well. So good to see you guys. God bless. Awesome. Glad you could be here. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back, Isaiah said. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists, fists of fury. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. You probably uh, remember the massive tsunami that uh, hit Indonesia and Sri Lanka in uh, 2004. It was one day after Christmas. Uh, Here is the magnitude of that disaster. The tsunami was caused by an undersea megathrust earthquake. The Indian tectonic plate, located under the Indian Ocean, was subducted or pushed downward by the Burma Plate and triggered a series of devastating tsunamis along the coasts of most land masses bordering the Indian Ocean, killing 230,000 people in 14 countries and inundating coastal communities with waves up to a hundred feet high. It was one of the deadliest natural disasters in recorded history. Indonesia was the hardest hit, followed by Sri Lanka, India, and Thailand. With a magnitude of 9.1, it is the third largest earthquake ever recorded on a seismograph. It had the longest duration of any earthquake, between 8.3 and 10 minutes you can imagine the earth shaking that long and that hard it caused get this it caused our entire planet to vibrate as much as one centimeter and triggered other earthquakes as far away as Alaska its epicenter was between Simulu Island and mainland Indonesia The plight of the affected people and countries prompted a worldwide humanitarian response in all. The worldwide community donated more than $14 billion in humanitarian aid. Well, shortly after the tsunami hit, I spoke with someone uh, on the phone. Uh, She was working in missions ministry in Eastern Europe. She called me to see if I knew of anyone who was doing missions outreach in Sri Lanka that she and her husband had this burden, this strong feeling from God to go there as soon as possible in order to hold public evangelism meetings, that with the tragedy of the tsunami fresh on their minds, maybe these Sri Lankan people would be more open to preaching the gospel, or to the preaching of the gospel. We really need to get in there, she said, and we need to do evangelism right now. I was kind of surprised at what she said. Uh, And I didn't exactly know how to respond to her, so I just gave her a phone number of a relief and development agency that I was aware of, and uh, in my my heart, I just didn't feel that evangelism at that moment was the appropriate response, so I just gave her that phone number. And then, later that day, I spoke with a friend from Honduras uh, about this woman's strange request and asked him what it was like for him and his fellow citizens when when, uh, Hurricane Mitch hit Honduras a few years before that, and his response was this. Well, one thing we did not want to hear in those days was more preaching about the gospel. We needed water, food, and shelter just to survive. Isn't it strange that for some people, their knee-jerk reaction when tragedy hits is to preach? They're quick to point out sins, characterize tragedy as the punishment of God. Even Muslim clerics in Indonesia were quoted as saying, Allah has brought this judgment down on us because we Muslims in Indonesia have grown slack in our prayers. We are permitting more commercialism in our society. We are allowing tourists to come into this area and spoil our culture with their Western ways. God hates all of this. Because it is an insult to him, and so he has turned against us and brought this destruction. Of course, these mullahs don't explain why why the very same destruction also took place in Thailand and Sri Lanka, which are Buddhist nations. Did God hate the Buddhists as much as he hated the Muslims? What exactly was God demanding of the Buddhists and the Muslims? Uh, that such horrible things were happening to both of their religions. And of course, there were many Christians, Hindus, and atheists who also died in that tsunami. What was God's message to them? The Monday after the tsunami I was reading here in Isaiah 58, something hit me, and I'd like to talk about that tonight. This horrific event takes place in Asia. 230,000 people killed, many thousands missing who will never be recovered never identified the scale of their suffering beyond human comprehension but still we are drawn to these people to at least try to help them in their suffering and try to bring some sort of comfort to them that's what jesus would do that's what draws us the subtitles in most of your bibles tonight for chapter 58 says or say that this chapter deals with fasting The NIV Bible calls it true fasting. In my early Christian experience, I avoided this chapter. (laughs) I didn't like reading here because I wasn't interested in fasting, so I never read this chapter. But a more careful study of Isaiah 58 reveals something that might be surprising. Actually, chapter 58 is not about fasting as we understand it. Instead, it's about fasting as God understands it. And we discover that the kind of fasting that honors and pleases God is not what we might expect. God commands Isaiah in verses 1 and 2 to shout aloud and raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion. I mean, it seems, (laughs) this was a typical thing in those days, God was always telling his prophets, go and shout something. So I can imagine the irritation level in the people in the streets of Jerusalem. Isaiah, we can hear you. It's okay. You don't have to shout. God was always telling his prophets, shout it out, man. Cry out to these people. And that's what he was doing. He said, shout this on the streets of Jerusalem. And so this message had been given. Isaiah lived in the years when the southern kingdom of Judah was in decline. Uh, Israel was divided into northern and southern kingdoms. The north was simply called Israel, the south was called Judah. Jerusalem was the capital city of of Judah, and Isaiah lived in Jerusalem. So, over the previous centuries, since the time that David had been king in Judah, Israel, the northern kingdom, had been on this steady moral decline. The Assyrian armies, uh, to the east, attacked the northern kingdom, And conquered it in 722 B.C. Isaiah began his ministry eight years before that in 730 B.C. And then continued until his death around 681. Now these words in chapter 58 were written specifically to the people of Judah near the end of Isaiah's life. Their spiritual life seemed just fine on the outside. But Isaiah wrote that God saw something very wrong. And so instead of receiving God's pat on the back for being good boys and girls, uh, Judah was hearing this. They listened to Isaiah shouting this stuff in the streets and uh, the fact that God was very displeased with them. So, what we hear in verses 3 and 4 is kind of a short list of indictments issued against Israel You do as you please, you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in fists of fury. (laughs) Well, that's my interpretation. I didn't really say that. Wicked fists. In verse 9, Isaiah added the yoke of oppression, the pointing of the finger, malicious talk. All of that added to this indictment on the people of Israel. And then he goes on in chapter 59. He's so embarrassed He's so at the end of himself, Isaiah, for not knowing what to do, uh, that he says this to God. Our offenses, speaking on behalf of the people of Israel, are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. The point of what I'm saying is this. True spirituality, the kind that most honors God, it's not a matter of outward spiritual exercises. Instead, it consists of our sincere care for those who have nothing to offer us except their need. Caring for people, loving them as Christ loves them, even sacrificing ourselves so that they can be comforted seems to mean more to God than all of our outward physical ex- our spiritual exercises. He likes that. That's what he's looking for in his people. I'm sharing this tonight because, as Bob was sharing, next week is the beginning of Lent, Ash Wednesday, and we're asking everyone in celebration to spend that day fasting and praying for our church, for our leaders, for our city, for our country and world. It's important to practice these spiritual exercises, and we're going to do that, but it is only one component in an array of biblical expectations that God has for his people that have to do with caring for our generation in this present age, our responsibilities to them. God saw through Israel's thin layer of pretense, all the spirituality, and he called them on it here. They seem, he said, they seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does right. They seem eager for God to come near them. Those living in Judah maintained this semblance of spirituality. It all looked pretty good on the outside. But of course, God saw past all this religious outward to the core of what made these people tick. He realized they did not care about him. They were not eager to know God, nor were they people who were wanting to help other people. They were just concerned about their own spirituality. In fact, they were opposite of what they appeared to be. And they whined to the prophet about this. Oh, Isaiah, we have fasted. Oh, we've humbled ourselves. uh, You're saying that God hasn't noticed all these sacrifices that we've made? He hasn't seen us? You know, following that tsunami disaster in Indonesia, I was a little bit concerned when the U.S. Secretary of State made this comment that perhaps our aid to the tsunami victims in Indonesia might prove once and for all that America is a caring nation, even to Muslims. The problem with that statement is that it can be taken very wrong by other people as if we're helping you in order to prove something to you. Instead, I believe that she could have said, we're helping you because we're concerned for you, and we don't expect anything in return. If you still hate us afterwards, so be it. You see, Christians can do what seems to be all the right things on the outside, but not be pleasing to God. I've had people tell me before, I'm praying for you, brother, but I knew in my heart they hated my guts. I've seen groups of people in churches gang up or withdraw or gather secretly to pray and fast in order to subvert the honest efforts of a leadership team in that church wanting to do the right thing. I've seen apparently well-meaning Christians lay hands on hurting people to pray for them only to begin casting devils out of these people right there at the altar, humiliating them in some effort to get them free from some bondage that they might have been in. I've seen Christians pray that a certain sick person will learn the laws of faith and prosperity so that he can be healed, implying, of course, that that person is sick because he doesn't have any faith. I've heard Christians counsel others that if they would just repent of all their non-specifically named sins, all of their life's problems would just go away. I've heard Christians crow about how much they pray and fast and spend long periods of time with God and how their suffering and trial is somehow more special than someone else's and thus God is going to raise them up for some great ministry that's not available to those who are less spiritual. I've seen whole congregations grow to a comfortable size, adapt a comfortable language and culture within themselves, seal themselves off from outsiders, unconsciously adapt a set of unspoken rules and codes meant to foster this kind of an attitude of our for and no more in that church, and then wonder why people don't want to join that church? What we learn here in Isaiah 58 is that the religious outer skin that we wear may seem able to hide what we're really like. It may seem like that. But God sees right through it and He is not impressed. Celebration Church is involved, I would say we are very involved in helping people in all sorts of ways by practicing the practical. We're good at that. We've done it that way for years, and I believe it's probably one thing that sets us apart in a very good way. Uh, We are not all talk and no action at celebration. We do stuff. Time after time, you've risen to challenges as they have been presented to you. You have spontaneously reached out to those who are hurting. You have helped them. You have loved the unlovable. You have welcomed in the alienated. You have made them feel at home. You've loved the stranger, you've sacrificed your time and effort and money to see that hurting people in our church and our community are loved and accepted. But we always need to hear these kinds of things more than just once. And that's why I'm talking about it. Because it's so easy to slip back into very poor spiritual habits. So let's take a look at these words in Isaiah 58 and allow God to kind of motivate us tonight and challenge us, encourage us. I know you can see past the hypocrisy of these people in Israel. It's pretty obvious right here. I know that you understand what Isaiah was talking about regarding this real down-to-earth sacrifice that God expects from each one of us, and these people weren't seeing it. So let's see how we can turn these instructions from God to Israel into some positive guidance for this coming year for ourselves. Okay, so first, look at the word only in verse 5. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen, only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Okay, so their perception of fasting considered, consisted of this outward humility resulting in public prayer, public fasting, using sackcloth and ashes as kind of like a public prayer rug. This was their acceptable form of worship. The word only, though, means that God was looking for more meaning to this day for them than just the outward stuff. This was fasting by formula. This was passing the time, just doing what had to be done religiously, but there was no feeling in it. And then when it was over, they went home. And God is asking, only this? Is this your interpretation of sacrifice and meaningful and acceptable religion? Well, you can almost hear the response. I mean, what does he mean, Isaiah? What does he mean, only? If that's not good enough, God, we don't know what else there is. We don't have time to do anything more than that. Well, God was, he didn't say only because he wanted more time. He didn't say only because he wanted them to fast more or more prayers. He said only because the fasting and the praying they were doing hadn't led to anything that would help other people. For them, it was just go to the temple, bow your head, say your prayers, do your fasting, go home. End of story. With God, the prayer part was just the beginning. That was where a person connected with God and received strength from God and then received an assignment from God to go and do something. And according to what we read, that assignment would have meant going to help somebody who was suffering an injustice Or helping someone who is poor or hungry or who who had no place to call home. Someone who had been oppressed in some way or cheated or taken advantage of or just needed some help. That's where this fasting was leading, said God. And he said, here's what I mean, Israel. And then he followed this with a list of things he wanted them to add to their spiritual experience and practice in order to make their fasting more meaningful. Loose the chains of injustice, break every yoke, set the oppressed free, share your food with the hungry, provide the poor wanderer with shelter, clothe the naked, reach out to your own flesh and blood. Each one of these was proactive. Loose, break, set free, share, provide. Clothes, reach out. The people had become passive in their faith. They were willing to just pray and trust that God was somehow going to take care of everybody and all these needs out there. And, and they did their duty. They came to church and they fasted and prayed and went home. We're just going to leave it up to God, to take care of all the rest. James the Apostle warned about this attitude in his epistle. He said, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? And that's it. God said to Israel, do that on your day of fasting. Then I'll begin listening to your prayers again. There's not one word in this chapter that speaks of fasting as going without food for some time so they can be pleasing to God. You never get that from reading Isaiah 58. All of their time was spent on that, but that's not what God wanted. I'm not saying people in the Bible didn't fast. Jesus fasted. Moses did. Daniel did. But those were special appointed times of fasting with specific purposes. Not only that, the lives of those men honored God. Everything in their life. All of their time was spent in wanting to glorify their Creator. In sacrificing for him so that others would benefit, their lives basically were one great big long fast. Fasting carries with it the idea of giving something up, which in some ways is kind of too bad. That's only part of the story. The church thought it might be a good idea to have this season of giving up something before Easter, which we call Lent, and so we ask, What are you giving up for Lent? A better question would be, what are you doing for Lent? That's what was in God's mind. What are you doing for the poor and the oppressed? There are promises connected to the correct observance of a season of fasting. Lots of promises here. Verse 8, your light will break forth like the dawn. In other words, you're going to actually begin to feel hopeful again. And the joy of living is going to return to you. Your healing will quickly appear, he says. Well, believe it or not, when you see to it that others are taken care of, amazing, but God begins to take care of you too. Your righteousness will go before you. You will begin, in other words, to earn a good reputation. People will begin to connect your life and your words with something called righteousness with something called doing it right. And when they see you, they connect your reputation with that. And that's why he says, the glory of the Lord will surround you. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord also will be your rear guard. The truly righteous man and woman can expect protection from God when he begins looking out for God's interests. I've got your back, said God. Because you're covering the backs of those to whom I am sending you. Verse 9. You will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. Answer his call, he answers your prayers. Verse 11. The Lord will guide you always. Instead of being perplexed all the time about right and wrong. Instead of wondering what your next move is going to be. Instead of always dealing with confusion and uncertainty, you can begin to live in the peace of knowing God's will and the confidence of His guiding you through your life. Next, He will satisfy your needs in a sun scorched land. Lay your life down for others' needs, and God will see to it that your needs are met as well. He will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. You reach out to sustain others in their weakness and God will see to it that you are sustained. He will give you strength in life and compassion and energy and motivation when you feel you may be running out of that stuff. Rather than life draining you of life, it begins to feed you. And the more you give, the more you are energized. Verse 12, another promise Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. In other words, you will be confident that generations who follow you will walk in your footsteps. You won't live in constant fear that your children and their children are going to wander and stray and lack faith or wisdom. Instead, they're going to work at what you work at. They'll see the value of what you've done and they're going to join you in the building and rebuilding work of God's kingdom. The word ethos means the characteristic and distinguishing attitudes, habits, and beliefs of an individual or a group. We met some uh, nomads in western Afghanistan uh, when we were over there in 1978, we had a brief conversation with some of them. They were, we were on the highway, and they were camped off, off, off the highway with their camels and their goats and everything. It was pretty cool meeting them. And uh, their, their ethos uh, is that they want to be left alone. Uh, they don't want to live in a fixed place. They want to travel and move all the time. They are Muslim in their beliefs, and they want to continue life as it has been for them for centuries Herding goats and camels and living off the land. That is their ethos. That is what drives and motivates their culture. People groups and people all over the world live. We all have our ethos. Even churches, Catholic, Baptist, Pentecostal, Methodist churches have a very predictable ethos. But even that can be broken down further into individual churches. I mean, Celebration Church, we have our own ethos here. We have distinguishing characteristics that give us our identity. It's taken some time for that to develop, but it's begun to take shape nevertheless and It's really cool. Our ethos centers around our value statement. Be real, be long, become. People who come here discover acceptance, warmth, fellowship, healthy spiritual atmosphere where they can grow in their faith. They can create healthy families discover new ways to help other people, and as a result, things happen through our celebration ethos. Missions happens, family outreach happens, excellent worship, excellent uh, uh, Sunday messages that hit home across this wide spectrum of American human experience. These ministries in our church are exhibits of the ethos of our congregation they say a lot about why we exist and what our ongoing purpose is and as long as celebration exists you can be sure these these kinds of things are going to be a part of our ethos here the characteristics that set us apart and give us our church personality it's really cool and as we continue in our church's mission the benefits listed in Isaiah 58 are going to become very real for us here Fasting may begin to take on a different look for you this year than it has in the past. It may mean that you make this transition from focusing less on your own this year and your own personal holiness and focusing more on others. Fasting may begin to mean that you focus less on abstaining from things and focus more on giving of yourself to others. Instead of sacrificing eating, God may have you sacrifice your time Instead of more Bible study, God may start giving you ideas about how to be a servant to your community. I recommend a book by Steve Shogren. It's called The Conspiracy of Kindness. It's the philosophy behind all that his church in Cincinnati does. They have discovered the joy of serving others. It is their ethos. They have teams of servants who go out each week into Cincinnati to clean restrooms and gas stations, restaurants, bars, other public places. They give out free soda at busy intersections on hot summer days. They give out free hot chocolate at their own booth in the mall at Christmas time. They offer free Polaroid snapshots to families in the parks on Saturday and Sunday mornings during the summer. Theirs is a conspiracy with no hidden agenda. They just love people in Christ's name. And they let God take care of the rest. It's pretty cool. They've discovered a whole new outlook on fasting that exemplifies what God was talking about here in Isaiah 58. Uh, This year, we've got some great projects in the works at Celebration. Our missions team is getting ready to head to El Salvador in April to help drill for water. Our kids' ministries are continuing in their excellent outreach here at the church and in the city Uh, We offer groups like Grief Share, Divorce Care, Life Skills, Celebrate Recovery, His Hands, Others. Our gap year school, Transition One, begins this fall, which is going to give our members uh, uh, opportunities to host students from out out of the city and then provide them with meals and transportation. All care and outreach ministry in a church falls under the Isaiah 58 definition of fasting. That's what we do. Many things will have changed in your life by this time next year, just as we know that our world around us is going to change. But some things are always going to remain constant. And one thing that you can take to the bank is the sure fact that Isaiah 58 will be just as true next year as it is this year. Also true will be the calling that God has placed on our church. The ethos of Celebration Church will not have changed. It will be the same next year. Our hallmark will still be that which we do best, what I described earlier. We'll still be doing that. Next week, we start our Lenten season with a day of fasting and prayer. It's a great time to think about what God was trying to say in Isaiah 58 to the nation of Israel. Yes, take time away from food and spend it with me, but don't forget the poor. Don't forget your family. Don't forget your church. Give of your time your money, your talent, to the point that it hurts a little. Somebody said amen. To the point that you feel like virtue, power, resources, or energy have actually gone out of you for the benefit of somebody else. You feel that happen. That's fasting. Don't forget that, church. It's what Jesus meant when he said, Give, and it will be given to you. I am convinced we don't fast because we're basically afraid. People just don't get into this kind of lifestyle. And the reason is because we're afraid. We're afraid that we're going to lack something if we sacrifice. We're afraid that uh, something's going to happen, that we're going to suffer discomfort, if we give up time for someone else's sake or afraid there won't be enough left in the bank account to take care of our own needs, we don't experience Isaiah 58 because we're afraid. And then, of course, in some cases, we're just downright selfish. It doesn't need to be that way. Lent, Good Friday, Easter, all of these days celebrate and glorify the concept of sacrifice. They shout to us, like Isaiah did in the streets of Jerusalem, they shout to us that sacrifice in Christ's name is always a good thing. It's a good thing. There's no need to fear, lack, or want. Because he, he, Jesus Christ, is there watching over every one of us every second. He is there and because of that, everything is possible. All supply to us is possible. Amen? Let's pray. We love you, Lord God, and we thank you for this time that we could be together tonight. Thank you for your word and the example Isaiah gave us in your word about what true fasting is all about. Thank you, Lord God, that you have called this church into sacrificial living for the benefit of others. And Lord, we see that as your expectation of us, and we don't hesitate to give it. We, Lord, we we know that you love us, you have given your very best to us, and now we return the sacrifice of our lives to you, Jesus. Help us, Lord, to remember that during this Lent season. As we go into it, Lord, help us to remember others, especially the other members of our families, our spouses, our children, those that mean the most to us, to be willing to sacrifice for them, for our neighbors, our fellow Christians and believers. Lord, help us to have that outlook on life and that we might see the value of it not in just spiritual exercises but in the practical as well, that you, Lord, would just empower us, that those kinds of things would play out in our lives and that would would carry a significant portion of our lives so that we can have maximum impact in the time that you've given us here on this earth. We give you ourselves tonight, and we thank you for letting us be together again, for hearing your word, for this time of worship, and we ask for your blessing upon each one as we go our separate ways tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. We're We're done. God bless everybody. Have a great evening. See you all out there in Stevens Point and Appleton later.